Chapters 17, 18, and 19 of War and Woman by Mrs. St. Clair Stobart. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 17 Surmises amongst visitors who had not previously known us as to who and what the convoy corps are in England were often quite interesting as a revelation of the knowledge possessed on the continent of English societies. One day, for instance, we were honoured by a visit from the lady who was superintendent of the wards of one of the foreign Red Cross missions in Kirk Calice. For foreign Red Cross missions other than the British had brought women nurses. She was a particularly well-cultured woman and spoke in excellent English. She introduced herself to me and then said, I am most interested in your organization, Madame Stobart. You are the suffragette, are you not? I was beginning to explain that we were not when she interrupted apologetically. Ah, no, no, I am stupid. I know. Of course, you are the Salvation Army. The suffragettes and the Salvation Army, the only two societies in England yet recognized on the continent of Europe, brass bands and advertisement not without results another of our visitors was the cheery old bishop of starazagora he came with an attendant priest and brought for the soldiers a most welcome gift of cigarettes up till that time it had been impossible to procure tobacco and the patients had been clamouring for a smoke he also brought for us women not scent or sweetmeats but a gift of extra good tobacco for cigarettes and some good old madeira-like wine our wounded had not been before visited by clergy. I had made inquiries and found that it was not desired by the soldiers. They would, I was told, have thought it was a signal of immediate death for all had a priest appeared in the wards. The bishop merely walked through the wards distributing the cigarettes and an occasional blessing as he passed from bed to bed. Nothing in the nature of a prayer was offered. He was a cheery old fellow and full of pluck, was on his way to visit the cholera camp at Chitalja. Our hospital kept mercifully free from cholera, though patients might of course have been infected before entrance to our wards, and sixteen patients died from cholera in the infectious hospital in the street next to us. We were not supposed to take infectious cases, but after the armistice had been declared and no more fighting was taking place, medical cases became more frequent and needed careful watching, not only for cholera, but also for typhoid and a so-called malarial fever, both epidemic. The authorities had, however, early taken precautions against an outbreak of cholera. I had been summoned to a conference of the heads of hospitals three days after our arrival in Kirkkilis, and precautionary measures were then discussed and subsequently put in force. The conference was held in the offices of the Commission Sanitaire. The president was Dr. Romanoff, and the practical director, Professor Krauss. The room was, as usual, much overheated by one of those unmanageable stoves, which either emit too much heat and suffocate you, or, if checked, sulk and go out altogether, leaving you to an arctic temperature. I was more than ever convinced at this conference that the site of the Tower of Babel had been in Thrace, for the Babelian game was in full swing. The foreign missions in Kirkilis were represented, and everybody talked at once, in every conceivable language. This might have been all very well if everybody had understood every language, but as the majority could speak one language only, and that imperfectly, it was marvellous how any business was transacted. I reflected on the incongruity of the spectacle. Twentieth-century human beings, denizens of a much-vaunted civilization, met together to discuss problems of life and death, unable to communicate their thoughts if half the money that has been spent by man in devising materials for the destruction of man 
had been expended in devising means for verbal intercourse between man and man the desire for mutual destruction would probably have vanished long ago has not the tower of babel period of confusion in language and ideas lasted long enough when will come the pentecost our hospital visitors were always much interested in noting the cleanliness of the wards for this was as they knew a result not too easily achieved improvised spittoons in the shape of open saucers made of red pottery loomed largely but the patients had a playful habit of throwing bones and scraps of food on the floor at meal-times and cleanliness was only attained by night and day efforts but in their persons the bulgarian soldiers were extraordinarily cleanly their first craving on admission to hospital was always to be washed specially to have their feet washed if for any reason the every morning routine all over wash was delayed even for a quarter of an hour it was a grievance when they were convalescent enough to be able to wash themselves this was an operation which they thoroughly enjoyed the condition of cleanliness in which they arrived notwithstanding all they had endured was marvellous and i am always a disappointment to friends who desire to hear titillating stories of animal life in the balkans much interest was taken by our visitors in the theatre for with the exception of the surgical instruments which had been brought from london everything was improvised and home-made with results that were astonishing visitors were surprised to find that the soldiers had no objections to operations being performed by women i soon learned enough of the bulgarian language to be able to understand the questions that were asked upon such points by visitors to the patients in the wards the answers made always satisfied and i think often surprised the inquisitors for the men with one accord agreed that they had never been so gently or so successfully handled by either doctors or nurses whilst our own doctors and nurses corroborated to their last day in hospital the impression gained on the first night that in qualities of courtesy respect and gratitude no patience could surpass these bulgarian peasant soldiers End of chapter seventeen chapter eighteen but the patients were not only grateful to their doctors and nurses they were also particularly appreciative of the efforts of those who catered for their gastronomic requirements and the kitchen-work under mrs godfrey's charge was by no means the least laborious nor the least trying to the temper the kitchen contained no stove and no cooking apparatus except a large open chimney-place the only pots and pans or culinary utensils were three enormous stew-pots which dr radelf had lent us from the red cross store at sophia we could requisition through our lieutenant certain quantities of brown bread sugar cheese salt tea and meat for the use of our patients and of ourselves but meat did not mean convenient butcher meat joints or legs of mutton or rolled ribs of beef brought into the kitchen ready for cooking meat meant bullocks and sheep which arrived at the hospital door not alive but whole and had to be cut up and transformed from ram to mutton broth from trek ox to tidbit by the three lady cooks every day during the seven weeks that we were in hospital these three patient and untiring women prepared cooked and served under conditions of peculiar difficulty all the meals for approximately a hundred ten people every day and it must be added to the entire satisfaction of the patients who continually sent complimentary messages to the kitchen it was soon discovered that good cooking meant in their estimation plenty of red pepper much variety was impossible and the stock dish was a stew composed of chunks of beef or mutton with gravy rice and as many vegetables as could be mustered 
and if this was smothered till it was the colour of terracotta with pepper derived from the indigenous vegetable inappropriately called a chili no dish from a savoy restaurant menu could have given greater satisfaction the first meal for the patients on full diet was at six a m and consisted of tea no milk but plenty of sugar half a loaf of brown bread for each man and a lump of cheese next followed the night nurse's breakfast at six thirty breakfast for the day nurses and the general staff was at seven brown bread and beef dripping tinned tea and no milk were the staple excitements of this repast occasionally however we were pampered with porridge and still more rarely with eggs which were sometimes brought in from country districts after the armistice began the men's second meal dinner the meal of the day was at twelve it consisted of the much-loved stew as much as they could eat and half a loaf of bread each man our own dinner at one thirty was varied as much or as little as circumstances would permit at six p m tea bread and cheese again for the men and at seven thirty followed our own supper of bully beef and cheese brown bread and tea or sometimes soup patients on special diet were given soup and arrowroot but milk was for a long time unprocurable and was only eventually to be had in very small quantities for the worst cases the superintendence of the serving of the men's meals was the most pleasurable duty of the day for it gave opportunities of having a talk with the patients at a time when they would not be either under the nurses or the doctor's ministrations this dinner hour was for the cooks of course the busiest of the day the stew was emptied by the cook-in-chief into large enamel washing basins and was then carried with half loaves of bread into the different wards of all the three houses by the nurses orderlies and interpreters in each ward the stew was served by the nurses and distributed to the patients by the orderlies and also by the interpreters who all did fine service in any work that was required in either words theatre kitchen or surgery wherever they were at the moment needed and they were much needed everywhere for our small staff a proportion those on night duty were of course by day absent for sleep and rest some again were on the sick list and we were as a rule left with none too many for the daily task of our young men interpreters one was in normal times in charge of the orphanage maintained by mr mahoney in sophia for macedonian and thracian peasant boys he did excellent work for us another a splendidly serviceable and resourceful lad was the son of an english merchant at jamboli he was a fine type of an english boy he never took no for an answer if we wanted yes and he was invaluable to us the two bulgarian boys had been brought up and educated by mr mahoney at the orphanage and also in england and ireland they both had family histories which were painfully typical of turkish suzerainty one of them told us he remembered when he was a child that he was one day sitting drinking coffee in his home with his father and mother when suddenly some turks burst into the room and for no conceivable reason began violently to beat his father about the head with big sticks his mother had then snatched him the boy in her arms and fled she was warned not to return but after three months she could not resist going back to the old home to see what had been left she found in the living-room which was otherwise as she had left it her husband's skull and the palm of one hand upon the floor the other bulgarian boy came to me a few days before we closed the hospital and asked if i could very kindly dispense with his further services and give him leave to go to visit his home his father had been a priest in the thracian village in which he and his family lived but suspected by the turks of preaching treason had been sent for three years to prison and had there died 
and now the boy told me that shortly after this war had broken out the turks had slaughtered three hundred out of the six hundred inhabitants of his village and he was now anxious to get back and see if his mother and sisters were still living or if they were perchance amongst the massacred i asked him with surprise why he had not applied earlier for leave to go i could not imagine how he could all this time have endured the suspense of not knowing whether the only relatives he had on earth were alive or dead he replied calmly if they are dead they are dead and i cannot bring them back i could not leave you here whilst there was work for our wounded to be done but now perhaps i can be spared and this spirit of philosophy of patriotism and also of chivalrous courtesy was typical of the bulgarian nation i had been prepared for the possibility of annoyance from the curiosity of men visitors who in a turkish environment would be unaccustomed to seeing such work conducted solely by women by women who absorbed in their work would have no time for sex frivolities but bulgarian men of all classes could give lessons to the men of most nations of europe in their attitude towards women and the only levity i encountered from the first day to the last of our undertaking was from a german officer he was one day hanging around outside the hospital door and i asked him if he wished to see over the hospital in reply he asked me with a smile of amusement who we were i was explaining to him that we were an organization of english women when he interrupted with the tell-tale question he had given himself away and i replied promptly no nothing of that sort they're all over fifty would you care to see over the hospital now and the young man turned away sorrowfully he had many engagements End of chapter eighteen chapter nineteen but a visitor who did eventuate and to some purpose was general vazoff lately appointed governor-general of lozengrad he went over the hospital and highly appreciative asked me if i could pay him a return call at his headquarters in the town and tell him more about our work as he wished to write a report to send to the king's secretary i therefore went one afternoon accompanied by dr kiranoff and we had a long and interesting talk about many things we discussed the terrible destitution prevailing amongst the peasantry as a result of the war and general vazoff said yes it was bad enough now but when the war was over the need for relief would be even greater whilst fighting continued those who had been driven from their homes were sheltering as best they could anywhere but when the war was finished and families were reunited and went back to their old villages to start their normal life again money would be needed to rebuild their houses buy their seeds and stock their farms that he said would be the time when relief would be most needed and when as we all agreed it would be most difficult to obtain because public attention in england and elsewhere would by then have transferred itself to some more topical drama of sensation and that as i also realized would be the time when the steadfastness of noel buxton and his balkan committee would prove their value we then discussed the hospital of the convoy corps and general vazoff much interested inquired the conditions under which we had come to bulgaria to nurse their wounded had we come under the auspices of the british red cross at this point dr kiranoff to my surprise and consternation broke in with some vehemence and gave me away the b r c s he said sent only men with their missions to bulgaria to nurse the sick and wounded they did not think the conditions in bulgaria would be suitable for women madame stobart he said thought the red cross society were mistaken and came out on her own bravo bravo that was well done and we are very grateful 
enthusiastically exclaimed general vazoff to my great surprise for i had been taken aback at dr kiranoff's frankness thinking that my lawlessness would probably be disapproved by the general but it was otherwise i wish the former added after some further remarks as he glanced round the sparsely furnished room which was serving as his office i could give you some souvenir ah he exclaimed as his eye fell on an oil painting mounted but unframed standing on a table against the wall he went up to the picture look he said as he took it in his hands and came towards me this is absolutely the only possession i have here it is a picture of a typical turkish country house on the maritza i looted it a few days ago will you accept it as an insignificant token of appreciation and gratitude i of course accepted the picture with pride to me it was not insignificant for was it not a testimony of the recognition by the highest bulgarian officials of the value of the work accomplished by the convoy corps dr kiranoff then left and i was also preparing to march off with my loot when the general rang a little handbell and told an orderly who came in response to order the carriage to come round at once and then he insisted that i should allow him to take me for a drive and let him show me the environs of kirkilis whilst the carriage was getting ready the governor wrote and gave me two letters one to the queen and one to the secretary of the king giving an enthusiastic report of the work of the convoy corps he told me i was to be sure and deliver these letters myself in person and then the carriage was announced the weather was cold with frost at night and i had no overcoat with me noticing this the general gallantly took off the beautiful grey-blue coat which he was wearing and entrapped me and as i remonstrated he sent for another coat for himself and then clothed in the voluminous and gorgeous uniform of a bulgarian general i solemnly descended the stairs with the governor and followed by the orderlies was bowed into the open phaeton drawn by two horses which awaited us at the door we drove through kirkilis receiving and returning the salutations of the people and of the soldiers who as usual crowded the narrow streets and out into the country beyond we passed amongst the vineyards by the roadside many groups of small oblong mounds of earth the shallow resting-places of the gallant dead who had fallen in the fight around this town it was fortunate that as the governor explained the earth here possesses some curious chemical properties which seem to prevent the usual malodorous results of decomposition general vazoff showed me amongst other points of interest the place where in a small village now destroyed a certain turkish general had a week or two before stood and wept for tears are not the monopoly of women at the defeat which his army at kirkilis had sustained but the battle of kirkilis was decided not as was recorded in the papers in the streets of kirkilis there was no fighting in the town itself but in the vineyards just outside and in the trenches of fort bulgaria the bulgarians had come trooping down over the mountains and attacked the fort just before dark one evening the turks defended it till nightfall but in the morning when the bulgarians expected to renew the fighting they found to their surprise that the turks had fled towards adrianople and kirkilis was now theirs the dispositions of the respective armies had already been explained to me by a military officer who had been sent with a message for me from the queen he had one evening walked with some of us to the fort about two miles distant from kirkilis and shown us the trenches now strewn with empty cartridge cases from which the turks had made their short defence and it was therefore interesting now in my drive with the governor to fill in the canvas and acquire an aeroplanic vision of the whole battle 
we drove and talked till it was dark when the general invited me to take coffee with him in the town but it was now time for the men's tea which i never missed the coachman therefore received the order in bulgarian à l'émission des dames anglaises and i was deposited at the hospital wondering as i alighted and the governor drove off saluting if there really were people in the world who were bored with life End of chapter 19